And I would invite you this morning to turn to the book of Jeremiah in your, uh, on your, in your physical paper Bible or on your uh, digital Bible, Jeremiah chapter 1. <clears throat> this morning we're starting a new series in Jeremiah. And as we start, I want you to think about a time when you had to confront someone's bad behavior because it was getting too hurtful for you to ignore anymore. Or think of a time when Jesus had uh, given you an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Now, if you have one or both of those moments in your head, you might actually now be reliving all the emotions you felt. Uh, certainly you felt fear, maybe worry. Maybe you felt a little anger at them. Right? Why can't they figure this out for themselves? Maybe you felt a little anger at God. Like, why can't someone else have this conversation? Why pick me? Uh, probably you remember feeling very inadequate. Uh, I don't know what to say. I don't perform well under pressure. I'm not good with words. I don't have the right education. If this describes your experience at all, then congratulations. Uh, you've gotten to experience a little bit of what it means to be a biblical prophet. Because in the Bible... The prophet's main job was basically having difficult conversations in the name of Jesus. It was to tell people that their behavior was sinful and warped and death-dealing, contrary to the God of justice and mercy, and that they needed to repent. And they had to tell people the consequences that would come if they didn't repent, which would be judgment and death, right? Hell. And not only that, the prophets also had to explain what exactly repentance looked like. And then they had to help people live out of their repentance. So you need to change or God will judge you. Here's how you change and I will help you change. That's a hard job. Who wants that kind of job? Well, you, if you're a Christian, you do. Well, maybe you don't want it, but it's the job that you have. Uh, because isn't what I just described basically what Jesus calls us to do in the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Right? Go into all the world, call the nations to repentance and faith by explaining both the blessings of repentance and the consequences of refusing to repent, and then help them walk with them on the road of discipleship. The fear and inadequacy that we feel of that commission is very similar to what Jeremiah felt, which is why chapter one of Jeremiah is so helpful to us because you're going to hear Jesus give Jer Jeremiah a very difficult mission. He's going to say, see, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down and destroy and overthrow to build and to plant. And you're going to hear Jeremiah respond with fear. He's going to say, ah, Lord God. Whenever we see the word like, ah, Lord God, we always have it be super pious. Ah, Lord, it's like, ah, Lord God, no. Like, behold, I don't know how to speak. I am only a youth. And our reflection on those things will be our first point, which will be calling, which will be a, Calling people to repentance is hard. And then in our second point, we're going to consider God's promise to be faithful to his word. And we'll hear God meet his difficult command and our fears with his promise, 
I am watching over my word to perform it. And then finally, our third point will be God's word of warning, which is Jesus will tell Jeremiah, and through Jeremiah he will tell us, do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. So here's our points. Calling people to repentance is hard. God's promise to be faithful to his word. And then finally, God's word of warning. Uh, So let's read Jeremiah chapter 1, and then we'll start our reflections in our meditation this morning. Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of of Judah." And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their old hands. But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah and its officials, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Thus far, what can only be God's own word. Let us pray. Our trying God, we thank you for this word, which you have inspired and preserved for us. And Lord, we pray now that you would give us minds to understand it, ears to hear it, hearts to believe it. Uh, Lord, we ask that the... uh, words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, that they would all be pleasing in your sight so that we might trust you as those commissioned by you to bring the gospel of Jesus to the world. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we need to talk about is how hard it is to call people to repentance. 
And the first thing that I want to say here is that Jeremiah's prophetic mission is international. So after placing Jeremiah's message within the history of Israel, notice that God says in verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I have two reasons for pointing this out. The first is that it clearly connects our great commission from Jesus to Jeremiah's commission from Jesus, right? Jeremiah is called to speak God's word to the nations, and we are called to speak God's word to the nations. And the reason I want you to see this is because it shows us something about how central the life of God's people is to the salvation of the nations that we are called to minister to. Because God does not have Jeremiah then go wander around the earth proclaiming the gospel like you would expect. Instead, God has Jeremiah spend almost his whole time in Israel speaking to Israel. So Jeremiah's mission to call the nations to repentance begins with calling Israel to repent. And Jeremiah's mission to grow godliness in the world begins with him trying to grow godliness in Israel. In other words, Jeremiah's international gospel witness cannot be separated from the gospel life of God's people. And this is a very important point in Jeremiah. And I think it's a very important point for us too because it shows us that our call to be witnesses to Jesus is inherently connected to the way that we live together as God's people. And I think this makes sense uh, because I've been in churches in the past and maybe you have too where uh, you might hesitate to bring people to them, not because you didn't love the people there, but because in my case, the church was in the middle of a conflict that had a tendency to sort of erupt in public, or I wasn't sure that they would be welcomed there. Have you ever had that experience? Something very similar was going on in Jeremiah's day, and we'll look at it much more in depth uh, as we go through, but that similarity is actually much worse than what I just gave. Um, Idolatry, oppression of the poor, slavery, injustice. Uh, So Jeremiah's international message from Jesus required Israel getting her house in order which makes the task of calling people to repentance even harder, doesn't it? It's hard enough to preach repentance to strangers who you may never see again. It's harder to preach repentance to your family and friends who you're going to see every Sunday and maybe every day at the dinner table. And the reason why it's hard is because the message that we preach involves death, right? It involves the death of Jesus, but it also involves repentance, which you could think of as coming to Jesus to die so that you can find life in him. Whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, which is an instrument of death, and follow me. That's what Jesus says. And to see that kind of death and repentance in Jeremiah's message, look at verse 10, where God tells Jeremiah, see... I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. 
So notice that most of Jeremiah's preaching is going to be deconstructive. It plucks up, meaning it takes away. It breaks down. It destroys. It overthrows. And it's only after it does those four deconstructive things that it builds and plants. And of course, the question is, what is being plucked up and broken down and destroyed and overthrown? And in Jeremiah, those things generally fall into two categories. Our individual lives of idolatry and our communal life of idolatry. And just to pick one, let's think about our individual life of idolatry, our individual idols for a second. So the message that God gives Jeremiah to preach to Israel and to the nations is to pluck up and break down and destroy and overthrow your idols of Baal and Asherah and with them tear down your exploitation of the poor and the selfish way that you treat your family and the greedy way that you relate to money and power and the dismissive way that you treat the stranger and the cynical way that you relate to Jesus acting like he can be bought off and bribed and fooled or something like that. Pluck up your old idolatrous way of life so that you can build a new life of godliness with Jesus by his grace that bears the fruit of righteousness and love and peace. That's basically what Jeremiah preaches. That's a powerful cross-shaped message, isn't it? But with that cross-shaped message, uh, with that kind of word, there's a fear and a difficulty that comes from proclaiming it. Right? To tell someone, you need to change the things that you believe are fundamental to your identity. And to break habits that have been a part of your life for decades. And to admit out loud your moral failures to God and to the people whom you have failed. And to expose yourself to the need to make amends for those failures. And then to take up a life of sacrifice and self-denial so that you can follow Jesus and build a new life of him in reconciliation with those whom you have wronged and the God who has forgiven you, that is super easy, hard, right? Because we bristle at that kind of message, right? The ones who have said that's the kind of life we want to live, right? We bristle at it. No one likes to hear that they need to change. No one likes to hear they need to put to death some of their closest held desires. No one. And we fear the response of anger and rejection and the potential loss of relationships that we know can follow because they arise in our own hearts when we hear them from other Christians. How much more will they arise from those who do not love Jesus? Which is what makes being that kind of messenger hard. And so we can say with Jeremiah, who understands instinctively all that's involved because he's not the first prophet, right? He had Elijah and Elisha and a number of other people to sort of have as his example. So Jeremiah tells God, ah, it's a cry of distress and fear. Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. 
And by the way, since verse 1 tells us that Jeremiah was a priest, we know that Jeremiah is not a boy. He's a man. He's trained in the Bible. He knows the law of God. So when he says that he does not know how to speak because he's only a youth, I don't think he's saying, I'm young and ignorant. I think he's saying that he feels like an untrained school kid. I am not trained. I am too unskilled. I'm too untrained for this task. I don't have the education. I didn't get the right degrees. I don't have the right kind of personality or the right kind of life experiences. I'm not good with words. I stumble. I stutter. Sound like Moses? Like, why pick me? Does that sound familiar to you guys? And the answer that God gives to Jeremiah is the same answer that he gives to us. Because I know that we feel unequipped to be good witnesses. Right? I don't have the words. I don't have the skill. I don't have the arguments. But notice that God doesn't give Jeremiah arguments or personal experiences. Instead, God gives Jeremiah his word. That's the end of verse 6. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. And it's the beginning of verse 9. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Which I think must have been an encouragement to Jeremiah. I know it's an encouragement to me. Just like Jesus says, when they haul you up to have you bear witness in front of the courts, don't be afraid of what you will speak because I will give you the words to speak. I'll give, I have my words. I will give them to you. So your job, Jeremiah, isn't to be clever. It's not to come up with a bunch of arguments. It's not to change who you are. You don't need to change your personality or anything like that. Your job, Jeremiah, my job, our job as those commissioned by Jesus to be his messengers is to deliver the word of God, which in our case is the Bible, right? It's not about being the smartest. It's not about being the most eloquent. It's about being faithful to share the word that God speaks in his scriptures to his people. Because, and here we come to our second point, God's word comes with a promise, and that promise is found in verses 11 and 12. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Almond sounds like the Hebrew word for seeing. And then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, the question that we might have is, why does God tell Jeremiah that he is faithful to his word? After all, Jeremiah is a priest. He clearly loves God. He clearly follows him faithfully. Otherwise, Jesus would not have selected him to be a prophet. So why promise Jeremiah that God is going to do what Jeremiah certainly must have believed that God would do? But even as I ask that, my guess is if you've ever had to have one of these difficult kinds of conversations with people, right? Conversations that involve repentance and death to an old life and the promise of a new life in Jesus, then you probably know exactly why God had to say this to Jeremiah. Because isn't it true that when we face these kinds of situations, our faith can falter? And we can hesitate to tell people what God says. And isn't that especially true when it looks like following God's word will actually be harder than not following God's word? So in Jeremiah's life, Jeremiah is going to eventually have to tell Israel that repentance for them will look like 
voluntarily surrendering themselves to the army that has invaded their land and surrounded their city and has been trying to starve them to death. How much trust do you have to have in God to tell people that salvation is found in surrendering themselves to the army that has been trying to starve you out? Or to take a more personal example, um, this is from my own ministry. So uh, I never do these. You're going to get two in this sermon. And then I won't talk about my life for like another three years. But um, I was sitting with a woman whose husband had made fun of her and insulted her to the point where she ran sobbing from the bedroom and locked herself in so that he couldn't follow. And then he called the police. He lied to them about her saying that she was threatening suicide and told them that she had locked herself in the bedroom with a gun. And that gun, by the way, was usually kept in the safe in another room, which made it seem like to me that this had been sort of a planned thing. So the police come and they take her. And the next day, while she's in the mental health ward of the hospital, he filed a restraining order against her for the protection of their children with the older children giving written statements to the court, repeating some of the lies that he had just told them from the night before and from several weeks prior. And then he started divorcing her on the same day. So the day she gets out of the mental health ward, which is a two-day stay in Seattle, uh, we were sitting together trying to figure out what it looked like to follow Jesus in this colossal, evil mess. And naturally, her goal was to get her children back as fast as possible and to get you know, back at him as effectively as possible. But unfortunately, as in most situations that involve years of lying and manipulation and that now involve the court system, the fastest ways involved a lot of lying and manipulation. And of course, on top of that, she had her understandable hatred towards this man who had ruined her reputation, had her children stripped from her and sort of destroyed, you know, what life was like. And as we talk, I remember saying basically that, you know, while all the responses she was coming up with made sense, that they aren't the road to godliness, that we needed to work together to repent of the manipulative, revenge-filled life that had been their married experience up until now and to try and follow Jesus and in this conversation, I sort of vaguely remember talking about the need to love enemies and seek repentance and reconciliation. I vaguely remember talking about the, you know, needing to patiently wait on the Lord to work in ways that only he could to heal their relationship with their children. Like Jeremiah, I felt way out of my depth. Um, but I was doing my best to speak God's word, but I was definitely speaking it in this sort of academic kind of distance way. And I know that because I don't remember the conversation well. And the reason for that is that as I was sort of expounding this, she looked at me and she said, will Jesus' way really work? Or to put it in our terms this morning, we're repenting of my desire to hurt my husband and doing whatever is necessary to get my kids back, actually be blessed by Jesus in my life and in my kids' life. And maybe you know, a few years down the road when I live more with Jesus, my husband's life as well. And honestly, that question landed on me very hard uh, because honestly, my first thought was, I'm not sure. Uh, I wasn't sure that the way that I thought and hoped I was faithfully explaining God's call 
was better than going in guns blazing, doing whatever you needed to do. Because what if it takes Jesus 5, 10, 20, 30 years to do something? What if it's not his will to do something? Do I trust that God will be faithful when I ask her to die to her understandable desire for revenge and to get the legal rights of her, to her children restored no matter what lies and manipulation are necessary? Right? Do I trust that planting a life of waiting on the Lord to restore your children to you in your good time and in his good time and showing Jesus' love to the man who destroyed your life, that that is a life that Jesus will actually bless in ways that she can experience today and in the future and that will pour over in blessing to those who are involved in this conflict. And so just to tell you, what I learned from that situation is that even when you're doubting whether or not God's word is true, as I'm sure Jeremiah did, you affirm God's word. And thanks to the grace of the Holy Spirit, because it was him and not me, uh, with a divided heart, I said, yes, it is. Because what you'll learn, as Jeremiah did, and as I do all the time in ministry, is that Jesus can be trusted. He really is watching over his word to make sure it comes to pass. Now, I don't know what's happened with her children or her husband right now, but I do know that in the months that followed, out of all the anguish and suffering and tears, she said that that hard choice of repenting against the desire for revenge and manipulation was worth it because she'd come to know the peace of Jesus in a way that she never had before. And she also experienced a beginning of reconciliation with her children as her obvious responses of godliness to continued outright sin and provocation opened up the space that her children needed to begin trusting her again. They tasted the fruit of Jesus in her life in the midst of a bitter death and began to say, maybe you're not the problem. Maybe we can have a relationship. She experienced Jesus watching over his word of repentance and performing his work of bringing new life, which he has promised to respond with. Jesus watches over his word to perform it, which doesn't mean that Jesus makes it easy. We'll see that in Jeremiah if you haven't experienced that in your own life. Uh, but it does mean that Jesus will be faithful to do what he has promised to do. The call to repentance is always hard because repentance is always hard. It is a form of death. But Jesus brings life from the dead. That's his promise. And on top of that, he even promises to be with us when we walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Or as he says to Jeremiah in verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, to vindicate the word which you have proclaimed to them in my name, declares the Lord. Jesus always responds to the plucking up of repentance with the planting of new life and righteousness. He watches over his word to perform it, which is why there's also a warning given here. Uh, so the first word that God gives Jeremiah to preach in verses 13 to 18 
is a really hard word. We're going to think about that word in more aspects of chapter 1 that I've sort of been glossing over this morning next week. But the summary is, God threatens to tear Israel down because they have become extremely rotten, right? Idolatry, slavery, murder. It's not a good place. That's a hard word to say to your friends and family, isn't it? Do you know what, mom and dad, brothers and sisters? That's not okay. You need to repent and change. But notice what God says about delivering that hard message in verse 14. He says, Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. So this is a really compact phrase that relies on a couple different meanings of the word dismay. I'm going to, despite my deep desire, skip out on geeking out on the grammar here. I'm just going to give you a long paraphrase of what God is saying. Um, Super big, full-out paraphrase, okay? So this is not all implied. I'm giving you a bunch of context here, too. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you let your fear and embarrassment keep you from giving my word of warning and repentance, if you tell them that everything is okay, or you water down the message so that it isn't as difficult as it needs to be to actually produce the kinds of deep change that are necessary, Know that I am still going to do what I say I'm going to do. Your failure is not going to constrain my response. And when disaster then inevitably comes because they will not have repented, I'm going to make sure that they knew that you had the solution, but you didn't give it to them. And they are going to accuse you of being part of the reason why this happened, and they will be right. And you'll be embarrassed and ashamed because you didn't offer help. Because you loved your own emotional comfort more than you loved them. And I personally have experienced this kind of dismay. So here's another example. Like I said, this is my last personal example for the next six years of our life together. Um, Six, at least six, seven or eight maybe. Uh, So... I was talking with a couple, um, and none of these are here in this church, by the way. That's why I can use them. So I was talking with a couple who sinned repeatedly with money. They did not use their money to love God, to love their family, to love their neighbor, to love their community. They used it to love themselves. They would spend exorbitant amounts of money on everything that they needed, right, Brand new shoes again, designer clothes again, new cars, all sorts of things. Vacations because they were stressed out all the time. Going out to eat every single day of the week. And the result of this was they couldn't pay their mortgage all the time. They usually couldn't pay their bills. Uh, They almost never gave any money to Jesus. And when they did, it was an attempt to buy them off. Hey guys, hey deacons, we just gave money to you. Do you think we could get some help? We're giving members. Can't you help us with our bills? Uh, And when they reached a crisis point again, they came up to me and asked me what they should do. And I said, you need to get a hold of your spending. You need to get a second job. You need to work more hours. And you need to learn how to use money as a tool to love God and your neighbor rather than yourselves. And then they got furious 
Um, they were very mad. And, and I thought, oh no, this is going to kill our pastoral relationship. They're going to leave the church and I'm not going to be able to be a voice in their life anymore. And on top of that, they're going to tell their friends and family what a terrible person I am and I'm going to be bad-mouthed all over the community. So I backed off. And I basically gave them a smaller, way smaller idea of what repentance meant. You know, be a little less selfish. Try and go out six days a week, not seven. Give a little bit more to Jesus. You know, I did not call them to die to the, their obvious idol of selfish pleasure that they worship with all their heart and that when it was challenged, they got enraged. Right? Martin Luther's, my favorite definition of idolatry, uh, you know you have an idol because when it shakes, you shake. I shook their idol, and they shook in fear and responded in anger. Well, the result was with the blessing of their pastor, who valued our relationship more than their spiritual well-being, they went off and just did the exact same kinds of things, only now with like a blessing kind of in their heart from Jesus. Until, of course, they were totally broke, jobless, spent a season of life homeless, and then all the bitter consequences that just fell apart from their sin. And I know I did not make them do that, but I did help them. Because I was dismayed by them when they responded in a way that made me feel scared and embarrassed. I backed off the message that was clearly what Jesus wanted for them. And as a result, I was dismayed before them. Right? I withheld the way of life. And later on, they knew that I had withheld the way of life. And all I can say is, thank God for the cross and for his providential care of his people who he did not abandon and fail even though I failed them. And uh, I, am, I am just very, very grateful that in the ministry it's Jesus who kind of makes sure everything turns out okay and it's not just on us. So that's what it means to be dismayed before them. It means when you are so impacted by their response, emotional, aggressive, sad, maybe silent treatment, you back off from the word. Wow, you're right. Maybe Jesus doesn't really want that for us because I want our relationship. And then what happens is we become dismayed before them. That did not happen to Jeremiah. So I had to give you an example from my own life because I can't give you one from his. Um, but let's conclude now with this. I don't want to be dismayed again. Uh, I'm sure you don't want to be dismayed. We want to be faithful to Jesus and to the people around us. So let's recognize with Jesus that he has given us a hard message to preach. It's a good message. It's the best message, but it's a hard message. It involves death. But let's trust in his promise that he is watching over his word so that we can give the gospel with confidence that those who come to Jesus to die will find and experience his resurrection life poured into their hearts through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> 
Our God and Father, we thank you that you know the difficulty of this message that you have given us to preach. We thank you that you have experienced that difficulty yourself in the life of Jesus. And Lord, we, uh, we pray that in those places where we have been dismayed by the response, that you would forgive us and that you would uh, work in uh, the lives of those whom we watered down the message to bring uh, a fuller, stronger message of repentance to them so they might turn from their wickedness and live. And Father, we pray as your people uh, that you would make it the delight of our hearts to speak your word and to trust you. And Lord, even when our hearts are divided and we fear that your word, uh, that you will not be faithful to your word, Lord, help us to speak it anyway and then help us to, so that we can learn how faithful and true and wonderful you are. Father, you never let your word fall to the ground. You always make sure it accomplishes everything for which it is sent. Please help us to live out of that truth and speak out of that truth so that we might um, be a faithful communal witness to Jesus. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.